0: This week's episode is powerful and inspiring. Before we hear from Adjawa Burroughs, I want to share a reminder that our exhibit, See Where It Takes You, is on view now at tapexhibit.com. Go check it out. Help us spread the word by sharing it with your friends, family, students, fellow teachers, and artists. Thank you. Adjawa Burroughs has had several successful careers and it was such an honor to talk with her about her art practice, teaching, and children's books. She spoke about narrative and the importance of telling your own story and ensuring that students have opportunities to tell their own stories. I was so moved and inspired by this conversation. I hope you feel the same as you listen. Adjua Burroughs is a mixed media artist and educator. Her multifaceted career includes decades as a graphic designer for major corporations and illustrating over a dozen picture books, including Grandma's Purple Flowers, which she also authored. Her journey as a teaching artist includes years teaching in the National Museum of Women in the Arts, Bridging Communities and Arts, Books and Communities, ABC, program in 12 schools, and 11 years developing art residencies as a teaching artist with the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in dozens of schools in the D.C. metropolitan area. Burroughs has a BFA from Howard University in printmaking and an MA in art education from the Corcoran School of Art at the George Washington University. In her current art practice, she creates abstract mixed-media prints, collages, and sculpture from reclaimed cardboard that address issues of consumerism, decay, and rebirth. She lives and maintains a studio in Northern Virginia and is an elementary art teacher at the Flint Hill School in Oakton, Virginia. And I have to thank Nikki Brugnoli, who introduced me to Ajoa. So thank you, Nikki. And thank you, Ajoa. It was so wonderful to speak with you. Let's get into the conversation. So I'm here with Ajoa Burroughs, who has had, we were just saying, sort of several successful careers. And I love to start just getting a little background. So could you kind of talk us through your story. And one of the questions I always ask is, how did you become an artist? And then also, how did you become a teacher? And did one come first? Okay, well, definitely
1: the art came first before the teaching. I grew up in Chicago, born and raised in Chicago, and I came of age at the tail end of the black arts movement, which was characterized generally from the 60s to the mid 70s. -hmm. And this movement, it was kind of morphed out of the black power movement and created this whole new generation of artists and writers and poets. Primarily, their objective was to create these politically engaged artworks that drew upon the history and the culture of African-Americans. So that was like my backdrop, right, as a young person growing up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So my consciousness as an artist was informed by this movement, the Black Arts Movement, and all the subsequent art and learning experiences I had after that. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. All of these art and learning experiences I had at the Southside Community Arts Center, which, uh, of course, was on the south side of Chicago. Yeah. And I took free art classes there. There were events and exhibits there. I participated in exhibits there and engaged in all this uh, communication with all these professional artists. And when that started, I was just in high school. I was like a junior and senior in high school. So that was like so big. And I joined like this organization called. NCA, which is stands for the National Conference of Artists. And it's one of the oldest black art organizations in the nation, right? Mm -hmm. And even as a young person, after I graduated from college, I headed up the Chicago chapter and we had the 25th National Convention there in Chicago. So all of those experiences were just so rich and pivotal for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I started out as an artist from high school. I went to a, a magnet school, Lane Tech, where you could actually major in art. And at that time, it was unusual to have a school where you could major in art or music, but I was able to do that. So that that was great, too. That launched me as an artist, in addition to those experiences.
0: Was that school in your neighborhood or did you have to travel to go to Lane Tech? Yeah, it
1: wasn't in my neighborhood. And that was uh, different for me, too. I had to take a bus and a
0: train mm-hmm. to get there. Uh, yeah. But it
1: was, it was, of course, so worth it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: And then the other pivotal experience was my experience at Howard University. Mm-hmm. I was recruited by this artist named uh, Jeff Donaldson. And Donaldson was uh, one of the founders, one of five artists, founders of this organization called uh, Africobra. And Africobra started in the 60s in Chicago in 1968. And their whole thing was creating this aesthetic this Black aesthetic, this new Black art uh, aesthetic that was Separate and different from the whole Western canon of art. Yeah. So that was incredibly exciting for me. Having had the experience of going through Howard University at that time in the mid 70s, it was just a super vibrant, energetic period. And several of my artists were Afro Cobra members, and then the other, all the artists, I just thought that they were all amazing and they had careers of their own, notable careers of their own. So My whole experience in Chicago and then my that pivotal experience um, going through Howard in the 70s, all of those things kind Mm -hmm. of shaped who who I am, who I was as an artist, you know?
0: Yeah. Amazing. And do you feel like as a teacher, thinking back to you having those experiences, do you try to bring that type of experience to your students?
1: Well, yeah, like, you know, the exposure to the world of art,
0: mm-hmm. the
1: fact that art just doesn't exist, like right here only in your neighborhood, but it's also connected to other people and other movements, you know, and energies around the world, really.
0: Right. And then also, I feel like just hearing your story that a big part of it was also so having role models, like having, you know, representation being exposed to the Black arts mm-hmm. movement and having these, Jeff Donaldson at Howard, having these role models. Oh,
1: absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Throughout your young art career.
1: Yeah, it was quite nurturing because during that time when I was in mm-hmm. high school, even, I was always like the youngest kid on the block kind of thing. So people, kind, <laughs> people definitely took me under their wings. There was this artist, activist, amazing woman, Margaret Burroughs. Her her name our names aren't spelled the same, you know. People used to say, Oh, is that your mother? (laughs) I'm like, No, but I wish she was (laughs) but she was this powerhouse Artists in Chicago and she was one of the founders of the Southside Community Arts Center uh, it started in the 40s as a part of this whole WPA yeah yeah I think it's wow. one of the few wow. remaining WPA institutions but she was great you know right. she was always approachable she you know would advise me on things so I felt like I had this vibrant very real community of artists you know that were nurturing me during that time and I remember Remained uh, in in touch with all those people people throughout because of the NCA, you know, the annual conferences and everything. So. Yeah, just yeah. rich beyond measure, just
0: incredibly rich. Yeah, amazing. And
1: the professor, my professor said Howard, Lois Mallow-Jones, a painter. She, she's like one of the few uh, African-American artists represented in at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. Mm. Scholars, just, you know, artist scholars. James Wells, who was a printmaker, a very notable printmaker. Just an incredible lineup of artists thinkers. Yeah, it was just amazing.
0: Yeah. And then how did your how did you become a teacher as well? Where did that like when did that come into your career?
1: Yeah, the teaching came uh, as a result of my work in children's books because my mm-hmm. children were young at that time and their teachers would often ask me to come into the classroom, you know, share share my books and my process with the kids. So the seeds of my teaching yeah. Started there, and that was like um, in West Virginia. And again, Mm -hmm. I was working as a graphic designer at a newspaper when I started illustrating books. But it feels like I've always had my my foot in publishing. Mm -hmm. You know, while I was at Howard, I worked on the newspaper, the school newspaper, I had a, a comic strip that I did. did illustrations for the paper. And I also did um, covers of books for small presses, like in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. So it was the publishing part that kind of launched me into my teaching. And then I started a lot of community-based art teaching with different organizations, reading organizations, because of my connection with books. Mm -hmm. So these were like teaching artists opportunities, some informal, maybe it would be a thing where I do something once a month or so. And then I started teaching on a regular basis with the Kennedy Center in their Arts in the mm-hmm. School program where you know, you were scheduled for a year interacting with, you know, in one season, maybe four or five different schools. Right. The thing that was great about that was you were able to design your own residency, your curriculum, which was really nice. And I always focused on the bookmaking and the art making because of the natural connection between myself as an artist, as well as a book writer and illustrator.
0: Yeah. Amazing. And how many kids do you have? Oh, I have three. (laughs) And do you feel like when they were young, were you still, you were, you were doing graphic design and then also illustrating children's books, Mm -hmm. were you, how were you kind of managing time? And this is a little bit of a selfish question. I only have one kid, (laughs) but I find it tricky to manage
1: time. (laughs) It's hard. It's, it's extremely hard and stressful, but you manage because I'm really driven in that way Mm -hmm. to create. Artwork, because in addition to even doing the the stuff that I'm commissioned to do, I was also doing my own work, my own um, paintings and prints. Right. You don't sleep very much. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yep. given a, you know, a work day and then you come home and you do all the things that are necessarily necessary for your family and then it's like you have a this shadow life that starts at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock and you work until 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock on other things, you know?
0: Uh, yeah, so familiar. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But, but I must um, say, um, like my major in, in at Howard was printmaking and, and I love that medium. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it, it can be difficult because you do need a... Well, back then you needed to press more, Mm -hmm. even though you can do some hand printing, but now they have these plates, these gelatin plates, which makes it really easy for you to print at home. So yeah, that's been very liberating.
0: Yeah. So now do you do most of your monotypes, monoprints with? The gelatin plates?
1: When I don't have access to a press, like all during this period where we were sheltering in place, I've been doing, yeah, yeah, I've been doing the monotypes at home, but occasionally I will have access to a press because I, I prefer, mm-hmm. I, I can't say I prefer because I, I, both of the medium, you know, both ways of working are great. But uh, when you want to do large, it's nice to be able to have a press. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a little harder to make something large with your hands. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I just Mm -hmm. feel like I was so lucky that during this time that I was able to work at home and that my studio was organized because it was really funny because we actually started around March, I think March 14th or something like that, Mm -hmm. when, you know, they made the declaration national pandemic. And like weeks before that, I just felt like compelled to clean my studio up and get it, you know, organized. Uh, and part of that was because we were going on a spring break, and I thought, ooh, yeah. I have to have things in order so that I can move straight into that. Because you know, when you work full time, whenever you have a break, it's like, oh, my goodness, you, you really want to be organized so that you can produce, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And so you already had your studio was at home. Yeah. So that's like your normal studio. So you didn't have to worry about not being able to access a studio space.
1: Right. Which, you know, that I was very fortunate in that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that's a tricky thing. Mm-hmm. And getting kind of into teaching a little more, how has this been in terms? of teaching this shift to online and kind of how have you managed that? Well,
1: you know, I think having that background in graphic design has helped me Mm -hmm. with, you know, being familiar with programs like the Photoshop and Illustrator and all that that has helped. I don't do any digital teaching. I don't teach any of that yeah. because I wanted to make sh- I just wanted to be in the hands-on part yeah. because that's important to me, especially in this mm-hmm. day and age, you know. Right. So, you know, I was able to jump in. It was very hairy <laughs> extremely stressful because <laughs> luckily at least we had 2 weeks To transition to it because it was it came at the time of our spring break. But many of my uh, friends that also teach they didn't have that. They had maybe a week Mm -hmm. to transition into that, right? And my school toyed or or jog toggled between like asynchronous and synchronous learning. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, we were only asynchronous. And with all of the challenges that presents, right? right. Not being able to see the kids and
0: yeah.
1: having to do those videos. I mean, the first video I did, it took oh. me like eight hours to do.
0: <laughs> right. And was, oh, it takes so much oh more time God. than just teaching yes, in person. <laughs> yes. And it's so funny because people
1: that are outside of the art education, they have no idea. They think, oh, right. that, that should be fun. <laughs> you get that all the time. That should really be fun. I'm like. Really? Uh, (laughs) uh. (laughs) But it's challenging because you want to be able to, You want to make sure that you give them everything, right? You give them the background, Mm -hmm. and uh, your lessons are clear, your objectives clear. You have the steps that are necessary. So it's it's extremely challenging. Yeah. But one thing I always did in my lessons, I thought it was important. I always always try to introduce an artist, talk about their process, show their work, and then launch into the creation of our pieces that were based on it, you know, or inspired by that.
0: Mm -hmm. Like
1: one of the lessons I had. For fifth grade, we explored the art of, I think his name is Moody, the last name, and he was a botanist as well as a photographer. So we looked at some of his work and then I challenged them to go outside and photograph something in in nature that intrigued them and take several views of it. So for me, I I thought it was important for them to look at things in different lights, not only physical light, but different ways of looking at an object. This artist, he would actually dissect a flower and then he would take the pieces and compose them on a page and photograph them. Wow. It, it's incredible work. I, they didn't have to dissect, but I had them to take different views of flowers really super close-up view and then some other views that intrigue them you know yeah and develop like three or four pieces that they could send to me so that was like one lesson
0: yeah and that was the artist was moody what was his first name i, think, I can't remember his first name oh okay yeah <laughs> that's all right. right i'm just curious because he sounds really. yeah and interesting. i hope i got his last name right <laughs> I know there's so many that we Mm -hmm. share with
1: kids. So, you know, the biggest challenge Mm -hmm. uh, for me going into this virtual teaching was the fact that there was no consistency in terms of what the children had at home to work with. Right. Right. So, of course, some kids had paint, kids that enjoyed art and gravitated toward art. Of course, they had all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. But then the person that's kind of on the fence with art, especially like fifth grade they were, you know, they'd have a pencil, they they may have markers, they mm-hmm. had crayons, but not all pastels, you know. So right. the challenge was to find projects where they could have options. And so, you know, I, I always gave them options in terms of materials. And I always tried to use materials that recycle materials in the home mm-hmm. and also explore materials that were found in the natural world.
0: Yeah, yeah, I found myself doing the same. And then kind of being grateful that we were coming to the summer as I started to run out of <laughs> ideas for okay, how, how else can I remix cardboard and like leaves? <laughs> right, right. You know. Yeah. Uh, and how was your teaching style kind of before all of this? Was were you kind of structuring lessons the same way, or did teaching online really shift the way you worked?
1: Uh, I guess the major way it shifted was in terms of the flexibility of the material, right? And I think one thing that teaching virtually allowed maybe more opportunity to investigate other artists and history, art history, mm-hmm. whereas yeah. I'm I'm more the the making I'm more into the making they do some research but not a whole bunch
0: yeah
1: i think that's important but I like the making more. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: I kind of do the same thing. And and I agree that I felt like I was able to maybe ask them to spend more time looking at videos of artists or just thinking about sort of where the artists came from than I was able to in the classroom. And part of it was just time. Like I want to emphasize studio time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you're saying, yeah. the making, but having, having the ability to send them lessons that have you know that maybe take more time than the time we would have been given in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I guess that is one of the benefits to all yes. of this—a little silver lining. Mm-hmm. And then another
1: <laughs> unexpected outcome of it of it was that the kids, uh, especially the younger kids, because mm-hmm. they'd kind of depended on their parents to in sometimes interpret the lessons to read right. to them, like in the really younger grades, K and one. And it allowed this yeah. engagement, which was kind of nice. Like I had one student tell me, uh, they posted the results of one of their activities and said, well, my mom kind of helped me with this, but just a little bit, you know, and I was like, interesting. And then I, I had, a oh. yeah, I had another kid whose mom actually <laughs> did the lesson separately Alongside their child, which I thought was nice, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like one lesson, we did a, oh. a kitchen still life, and they had to pick two or three objects from the kitchen, and mm-hmm. the parent actually did their version.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it! Yeah, I saw that a little bit, and and even like siblings kind of doing the same projects together, or you know, one sibling from a different grade would say, "Oh, I want to do what yeah. you're doing," <laughs> right? <laughs> they start working together, which was really cool. Uh And with teaching, is there any, like, are there any tips that you would give a newer art teacher either tips about this whole online experience or just for teaching in general? Well,
1: for online, I would say just to learn as much as you can. Mm-hmm. There's so much out there on the internet. These uh, tutorials and just many videos. It's incredible. It's really incredible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and I'm constantly learning as well. And I hope at some point during the summer that I'll be able to, you know, research some new ways of doing things like I had trouble working with multiple devices, Mm -hmm. working on the iPad and then working on the MacBook. And sometimes I would use my iPhone and it was very, very awkward. (laughs) And the reason why I wanted to do that was I wanted to be able to work on a piece to model a piece uh, and have the camera um, pointed right on my hand, you know.
0: Yeah.
1: Which is kind of hard to do if you if you're on your computer, you know? Right. Yeah. It's like we, we need more hands. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Oh, it is so tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so also sort of thinking about teaching and then thinking about your Mm -hmm. background, do you have any specific artists and especially black artists or other artists of color that you share with students and that you feel like make a big impact on students? I
1: I show them the work of Romare Bearden and I just Mm -hmm. think his work is so kid friendly. Yeah. I gravitate to collage because I just feel like with collage, it's so much less intimidating for kids, I think. You don't necessarily mm-hmm. know or have had mastered the art of drawing, right? You can cut something out or tear something out. So I, I like that part. And also Romero yeah. Bearden because, you know, he was so in tune to his own identity. And I feel like it's important for kids to be able to define to who they are and to create images that relate to how they see themselves. Yes. Oh. And, and then there's Alma Thomas who a, a painter. And she was an educator, too, for much of her life. Uh, and when I used to teach at, in D.C. as a full-time artist, I would introduce the kids to her because she was D.C. and, you know, she was African-American. And my kids were primarily African-American. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, emphasizing the fact that you don't have to always look outside of yourself. You know, there are models right here in front of us. And the fact that this artist was right here, she lived practically in your neighborhood, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way she worked, because she was at towards the later part of her career abstract. Um, the way she dealt with color, uh, her perspective. Many of her pieces were from like a bird's eye view from an aerial perspective, an abstracted aerial perspective of her garden. Right. Or space. So, you know, the themes mm. were really interesting as well.
0: Yeah. mm mm-hmm. Oh, and that's more, a lot of it looks like it could be collage. Yeah, I made
1: it collage.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah, I guess that's what I'm thinking of, that so many of the interpretations mm-hmm, are collage. Mm-hmm. Other
1: artists like Faith Ringgold in her work, mm-hmm. her quilt work, her books, mm-hmm. I think were, are important. Willie Cole. Yeah. And these are people that I, you know, admire as well. Uh, not on, just in relation to my right. teaching, but Willie Cole with his work with objects. Because a lot of my practice centers on materials and objects, and what he does with shoes and water bottles is incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah, really transforming those materials, mm-hmm. uh, but then you know, letting them be like they they still are obviously what they are. Like they're it's not completely disguised what it's made out of Mm -hmm. yeah which I actually feel like is in some ways similar to the work that you've been doing with cardboard that you're like I was looking at some of the sculptures and wall Mm -hmm. pieces that you've been making and just how the cardboard is so transformed but it's still like very obviously Mm -hmm. cardboard
1: yeah that was a draw for me to take something that Uh has that has its beginnings in something like taking a shoebox, for example, and yeah. transforming that, deconstructing it really, and making something else out of it. It's yeah. fascinating to me. And it has so many implications for me in terms of the message and social political implications of tr- what trash is. Yeah. What is? W- what are the things that we mm-hmm. hold and value in society? What What are the things that we purchase? What are the things that we throw away and and dis- discard? You know, it's, it has a lot of parallels in society.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So many layers mm-hmm. of meaning there.
1: Ooh. Oh. and it's also interesting because it it kind of has a connection to my past because my mm-hmm. early work. Work as a graphic designer, I was a package designer oh. for Campbell Soup and Mattel Toys. So there I was designing and creating these intricate packages for these things. And then, you know, now taking these same packages and destroying them and... <laughs> <laughs> Repurposing them, turning them into something uh, else. Yeah, I yeah. didn't even realize that until later. After I had started doing it, I said, "Wow, this, there's this past connection," you know?
0: Right. Yeah, and I feel like that also, like taking those packages apart, connects to the the history of those packages as well. And like, where did they mm-hmm. come from? And you know, like you're saying, what they, who purchased it, and what's what's the worth mm-hmm. now. But I love that that you've gone from creating to kind of dismantling right. these, these right. objects. Something.
1: And in the beginning, I only created from boxes that I purchased or, you know, items that I purchased. Uh-huh. So it was interesting because right. in on one level, it became like a snapshot of my consumer habits.
0: Right. <laughs> but uh-huh. I'm not
1: like a shoe person. I have friends that our shoe people, you know, and they have like so many shoe boxes in their closet, but I don't purchase shoes that much. <laughs> so at one point I, I needed to go outside of myself. So I started asking people to donate boxes. And then um, I would get, I would go to the um, shoe stores and ask people to save boxes for me. And oh, I'd yeah. walk through the door and they're just like, here comes the, the shoe lady, the shoe box lady. <laughs> How many do we have today for... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, and I feel like like I actually did a couple of lessons thinking about shoes. And there's a few artists, Tyree Guyton and uh, Shioda Chiharu, both have done work with shoes oh. and like the story that a shoe Ooh. can tell where they're I know Shioda Chiharu was collecting shoes from people in a similar way to your like shoebox okay. collection. But she was asking for for them to also write a little note of like, what is the story of your shoe? Where has it been? And you know, what story does it tell? And then even looking, I think we looked at Van Gogh did a like a Painting of uh-huh. his shoes. So, looking at that and saying, Well, what do these shoes say? Who wore them? And, like, where have they been? They looked old. And, you know, just thinking about those questions. What story yes. does that tell? Yeah. And the same thing with the boxes. Like, what story mm-hmm. does that tell? What did
1: it hold? And what meaning did it have for you? No? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah. And boxes are interesting uh, in general. You know, they're designed to protect. Yeah to hold, to maybe to hide. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sure there's people that, you know, put money in shoeboxes and push it under the bed. Mm, Right. And I I wrote a story about uh, pecans. I can't remember the name of it, but it never sold. But (laughs) it (laughs) talked about how, uh, well, it was inspired by the fact that like when I, was a child in Chicago and I had aunts in Georgia. My parents came, you know, to Chicago from the rural South Georgia. And uh, some of my aunts, they used to, put pecans in shoeboxes and send them, send them huh. to us, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So in this story, oh, it was called huh. Sweet Potato Day, about a little girl and her aunts making sweet potato pie in the kitchen. Huh. And in one of the pieces, one of the pages, it talks about how, you know, the package came in the mail and, you know, the child being curious about what's in it and then opening up and finding pecans. And she was like, pecans? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Oh. And do you share these stories, or your books, or any of your artwork? Do you share any of that with students? Yes,
1: because I think it's important that children know that artists—they don't just exist in a a vacuum or Mm -hmm. hidden away in a museum or, you know, that they're live and vibrant and in your community, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I bring in my books, one of them, Grandma's Purple Flowers, it deals with a a girl again and her relationship Mm -hmm. with her grandma. And so we talk about grandparents and, you know, who has a special relationship with their grandparent and what what are some of the memories that you have, you know? Uh, Yeah. everybody has story to tell. Beautiful. And it's, it's a matter of getting those out. And I think even, you know, art with children, art with adults, and just generally, it's all about the story It's about the narrative. And, you know, who gets the, yeah. the political side of that being who gets to tell your story? And, you know, who, who gets to tell the stories? Right. And I think that mm-hmm. comes down to like the whole race thing. Also, that Who's going to tell our stories? And we want to be able to tell our stories.
0: Right. Everybody
1: wants to tell their own story, you know?
0: Yeah. And everybody should get to.
1: Yeah. And not being dictated to by the overarching you know story that's put out there right Mm -hmm.
0: yeah are there any other ways that you kind of work in your classroom to overcome that or how do you create an anti-racist environment Mm -hmm. and yeah how are you managing that in your classroom and what would your kind of advice be around that
1: Uh, hmm. um i think you could start with some basics you know, like even the thing about the story,
0: Yeah.
1: you know, just, you know, putting your story out there, because I think it's the stories that make people human. And I think the whole thing about racism mm-hmm. is that it dehumanizes. It makes you less than a person. You know, you're just this stereotype. So I think you can start basically with creating visual narratives or, you know, written narratives about who you are. Yeah. And like, if you had a chance to tell the world who you are, what would you say? What, what would you say? I might do that come fall.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love that. Yeah. For all the greats. All of them. And it'd be so nice to see, mm-hmm. see what they do. Mm-hmm. And I love that, how you said visual or written that, you know, I feel like a lot of times Some kids are really stuck when it comes to images, whereas others are more stuck where it comes to words. Mm -hmm. So giving that kind of flexibility and the option for both. Mm is always helpful. And then it also includes, you know, the younger kids that might not be reading yet. Absolutely. Yeah. And all different ability levels.
1: Absolutely. But in my experience, I feel like people, children, young children are more apt to draw than they are to write. Mm -hmm. And so when like during my residency periods, at the Kennedy Center, I always start with the art and then we go from there. And once the art is down, they're able to interpret it in words. It's incredible.
0: Uh, Amazing. Mm -hmm. That's something I struggle with still. Like I'll be able to get an image out and then I'll spend ages just trying to figure out, well, I know it says (laughs) something. (laughs) I know I was thinking about all these things but like how do i how do i articulate it
1: mm-hmm. how do you put that down on paper yeah oh
0: yeah like even coming up with titles is so tricky mhm
1: mhm oh,
0: and i've rewritten my artist statement countless times oh yeah that is so painful <laughs>
1: <laughs> That is oh, so painful. it's so painful yes oh my gosh it's necessary <laughs> right because then again it's like you want yeah. to be able to Write your own story. You don't want other people interpreting it, uh, standing the chance of misinterpreting.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: Another thing Uh. that I did when I was with DCPS, we did this, it was a unit on power in art, which I think was so amazing. And what it did was, Mm -hmm. this was for fifth grade also, we did this whole exploration of images in art and power images in art. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I would show them maybe some Renaissance paintings of women, you know, adorned in in these huge, beautiful dresses sitting like on, you know, could have been a throne, right? And then we, you know, tried to dissect that, unpack that, look at her stance. What does it mean? Uh, Do you think she was a powerful person? What gives you that idea? Is it the color? Is it the way she's standing or sitting? What about it makes you feel like Mm -hmm. she's a person that's important? And then we'd look in look at other pieces where maybe it would be a painting from that period. uh, And then there's like a Caucasian, like lying on like a a sofa kind of thing. And then there's like, looks like a servant Mm -hmm. person behind her, carrying something Mm -hmm. that probably belongs to her, right? And looking at that and saying, well, let's look at that. How does that feel? What does that say about Mm -hmm. the two people, the relationship of the two people to each other? Who has power in this in this piece? You know what I mean? Things like that. Yeah. And then mm. we talk about, you know, identifying a time when you felt powerful, another time when you didn't feel powerful. So I think all of these things kind of uh, can be included in lessons regarding race and art, because art is not immune from racism. Racism pervades all aspects of society, you know? Yes. Yeah. And in the art making and mm. the art history and what kind of images are we exposed to what what kind of images are black children exposed to you know throughout their schooling in art you know so it was kind of like mm-hmm. dismantling some of that stuff too
0: yeah absolutely
1: and what's that guy's name kahindi kahindi yes
0: Kehinde Wiley. Yeah,
1: who kind of is, his whole thing is dismantling some of these things in his work. Yeah. So I show them these pieces of these Kehinde Wiley pieces of this black man on the horse, you know, and I mean, they're like, oh, wow, this is like amazing, you know, because many of them haven't seen anything like that before. Uh, So it just uh, opens up a whole new world of thinking about art and their relationship to art.
0: Yeah. Ah yes I love that his paintings provide for for us teachers that we can show these renaissance paintings and have a rich discussion about it and then alongside it show mm-hmm. his work that is inspired by these, but totally flipping mm-hmm. it around. Mm-hmm. And I I really love I might have to steal that <laughs> focus on power because that's an amazing way to look at it mm-hmm. and just such a powerful way <laughs> to look at yeah, it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: And one thing I noticed during this whole mm-hmm. virtual teaching thing was the museums. It was one lesson at a museum where you would take a painting from their collection and then you tried to duplicate it through gestures i'm costuming mm. have you seen that
0: oh the um like the getty challenge or that one
1: yes 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 which i thought was really yeah. really interesting and cool
0: yeah yeah one of the artists i talked to recently aaron boswell did that challenge with his students and some of the results were just amazing yeah. the way these kids came up with like how to interpret the images Mm -hmm. just incredible and I loved how kids would like pull in toys that kind of were like the same color as something someone in the painting was holding and use
1: that yeah that's incredible it's just amazing yeah that was wonderful
0: yeah so that's another another great way to tie in art history and like kind of turn it around make it make it your own Mm -hmm. Thinking more about your work, could you maybe give some advice about showing and selling your work? How have you managed to do that? And kind of what are the best resources that have been helpful along the way?
1: To show, I think I look online for a lot of that. There's artist calls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's different groups that publish artist calls like all the time. And then I think it's important to, to connect to your community mm-hmm. and see what art organizations exist. Like here, there's a Women's Caucus for Art. Yeah. There's a Black Artists of DC. There's a Washington Printmakers Group and there's a sculpture group. So depending on your medium, finding out what organizations exist locally would be a good start. Right. And then like if you graduated from a local university or something, you could also check the alumni associations. Mm-hmm. They often have opportunities posted like on Facebook groups or that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. And have there been any big barriers that you've overcome in your career? And then how did you do it?
1: Well, yeah, I think being a black woman in art is a big one.
0: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: (laughs) Art world is dominated by white males, and it trickles on down in so many aspects of the art world. Uh, In terms of having access to opportunities, just even knowing about opportunities and having the connections, people in places that can open doors for you, for you is oftentimes missing. And you know, I'm just because of who I am and. My personality—I tend to take noles as an opportunity to even push harder. Mm-hmm. I think there has to be—you, I don't think you can be a, a super shy person and be successful in art. <laughs> uh. Because it it takes a you get a lot of rejection anyway. It takes a certain hard shelledness to persevere, but just keep pushing it, keep pushing at it until the door opens. Because I know even as a writer illustrator, there was a I lived in California and I had done a bunch of emergent reader books for this teacher it was this publishing company was started by teachers it was called creative teaching press in california when i lived there mm-hmm. and i did a bunch of like emergent readers and i wanted to break into trade books and there was a conference in town it was called the booksellers association or something like that they changed their name since then mm-hmm. but the convention came to town and i'm like i'm going and um, <laughs> Because of some former (laughs) connections I had in printing or in publishing, there's a a guy from one of the smaller presses I used to do work for was there and he gave me a pass. So I went with my portfolio and and everything and thinking that I'd be able to talk to some other publishers. Well, it was it was not the best idea, but I was able to break through basically at those type of conventions. They don't want to see talent. They don't they want to see sellers, you know, but I was determined because yeah. I felt like this is a, you know, an opportunity that only comes up like once every it's you know, several years. So I kept mm-hmm. pushing and every publisher would say, No, no, it's this is we don't see artists here at this event, you know. But I talked to a publisher, Lee and Lowe Books, they're out of New York, and they're one of the few multicultural children's book publishers around. Oh. I showed them some of my work and they liked it and they said, Oh, we don't have anything that would fit your particular style and All of my children's books are done in cut paper collage, right? Yeah. So they're just like, oh, well, if something comes up, we'll let you know. And I thought to myself when I left that day, oh, yeah, right. You probably tell everybody that. (laughs) But two years, it took two years and I get a call from them and and they had a manuscript for me. I think it was called um, My Steps about some children playing, you know, on their steps through the seasons. So it's stuff like that, you know, where I could have just after that first no walked away or that second no or the third no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But just, you know... But you kept at it. Yeah. Being able to persist helped me.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so as a result, I have um, one, two, I think five books from them or something. But...
0: Wow. uh, Yeah. Ah. And some of them are that you've both written and illustrated.
1: Yeah. The Grandma's Purple Flowers was written and illustrated by me. And then I have two smaller, like, emergent readers. Go-Go, Gumbo, and Everybody Wears Braids.
0: I love that. And how did that shift like from being the illustrator to being both author and illustrator? Well, I
1: just felt like it was a natural progression. Mm -hmm. And I tell my kids all the time in school that you can be good at something, but you can push yourself and, of course, be better at something and then challenge yourself, you know, something that you feel like, oh, I could never do that. Try it, you know, and you can be successful, you know. Because I had illustrated at that time, I think it was like eight or nine books I had illustrated. And I said it was like an aha moment for me that, wait a minute now, I can illustrate other people's works. Why can't I write my own work? You know, because you do have you have a lot of illustrator artists. Out there, like you know, from Eric Carl to right. Ezra Jack Keats, you know the other mm-hmm. artists that I had mentioned for my kids, Faith Ringgold, you know, you, you have that. So why can't I be that? You know, and I tried and I was able to to break in, which thrilling for me.
0: Uh. Amazing. And it's interesting to me seeing, I'm just looking at the books and the collage that you use there and then kind of seeing little bits of of that echoed in your like fine art work, but they are also so different. The
1: illustration?
0: Yeah, the illustration and the books versus like your prints and your sculptures and wall Mm -hmm. pieces. And I'm curious how you kind of like wrap your head around (laughs) all of these projects that are always going on? Yeah.
1: it's hmm. Well, with illustration, you are bound to the words, right? So you have something very concrete that you're operating or launching from. Whereas with my fine art work, I work very intuitively and I pull things out of like what I see. I don't often come in saying, okay, well, this is going to be a piece about this and that. Mm -hmm. I start working and there are things and themes that are suggested through like the colors and the energy, the line work. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I operate on really different levels with them.
0: Do you kind of have projects going in both simultaneously?
1: Yeah, I'll be working on the wall constructions and everything and then working on an idea for an illustration for something or a story. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And do you feel like you almost need to have both going on? Like they, it would seem to me like they kind of tap into different, different parts of the brain or different sides of, yeah, of you, I, and are like releases in different ways.
1: Yeah, and I just, I, I guess it's just my personality. It's like I, I can't just have one thing. I have to have three or four different. <laughs> things. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it's detrimental, but it's just the energy, the kind of energy that I have that I'm constantly working on multiple things at one time <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind
0: of crazy that's it's amazing it's, it's meant that you have like several successful careers going <laughs> <Yes>. on <laughs>
1: but I think the main thing now yeah. is just well it's the, my teaching practice and then the practice of mm-hmm. creating the prints and the, the wall installations and floor pieces yeah even though I'm also working on a project a book project uh, an artist book project yeah. that relates to what I've been experiencing with during this time of COVID and everything. Yeah. And working on some writing related to that too for the National Art Education Association. Yeah. NAEA. Yeah. Uh-huh. They had a call for yeah. narratives and everything relating to working during this period.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. That'll be really interesting to see.
1: Yeah. I think everybody yeah. has had some really incredible experiences during this period, you know, and to just document it. I think it's important
0: yeah has that process kind of helped you like helped you through it
1: well i I didn't really think about like my response to it until recently because when you're in it you don't really think about it Mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah (laughs) you think about it but on a kind of um surface level like how am i going to get through this (laughs) How am I going, how I'm going to work through yeah. it? But then after, like after school closed, then it gave me a little bit more time. And all through it, though, well, the first month was really hard being isolated. Mm-hmm. But I after that, I started taking walks and taking photographs of the things that I saw, which mm. was comforting to
0: me because I, I don't think I even yeah. went outside
1: for three weeks. It was crazy.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, we were similarly kind of holed up. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because it's not really knowing, you know, like what this really is and ooh. yeah, but like documenting goes back to the who's going to tell the story of this and wanting to be included mm-hmm. in the stories that are told during this period, you know, so that motivates me to to write and to create.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And then maybe just thinking of all the things that you have going on, could you kind of like walk us through a week or a day? Like what is what is time look like for you? How are you kind of managing all the different aspects of what you do?
1: I have to write things down. (laughs) I have to write yeah. things down, and then, like being a visual person, I have to—I'll put things on post-it notes and put them on the wall, you know, like and put it in categories. Like I was uh, interviewed by the Studio Visit; it's um
0: uh, yeah
1: online, and so I had to clean up my studio for that. <laughs> <laughs> that and then getting ready for this interview even it helped me to reflect on you know my life and what. I've been doing over the decades, you know, and then this, yeah. this book project that's coming up, this artist book project, it's going to take a year to do it. It's yeah. a collaborative with eight other artists.
0: Wow. And
1: then working with, I work with a collective called Women of an Undetermined Age, W-O-A-U-A. Yeah. And we meet, you know, like every other week and we talk about our art and share what we're working on and everything. Working with that.
0: And, uh, that sounds amazing. Yeah.
1: So lots of irons and a lot of fires, but my biggest struggle is getting the work Done, you know? So, like, I guess in a given week, none none Mm -hmm. of my weeks are ever like the same. Right. (laughs) But like my week in school, like it's your day, of course, starts like five o'clock or six o'clock. By the time you get home, maybe four or five or six or seven, depending on what I'm working on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then just carving, trying to carve out some time in the evening, if not actually putting my hands on the work, trying to come up with a plan for the work or writing about the work, Mm -hmm. you know. And then on weekends, weekends are always a monster because you're trying to do everything that you couldn't do during the week, but still trying to carve out some time for your practice, you know? Yeah. So it's just an ongoing... And, struggle.
0: <laughs> yeah. And then finding time for all the other, you know, like taking care of yourself, taking care of if you have a family or, you know, a partner or kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I yeah. must
1: say though, it has gotten a bit easier, of course, than when the children were little. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like I'm starting this new life because all of the children are out. My son, mm-hmm. uh, the youngest, is 23 and he graduated a couple of years ago but everybody's in different cities uh, and you know we get together virtually when we can kind of yeah yeah uh,
0: yeah
1: a lot of facetiming or zooming yes yes and i'm about <laughs> zoomed out especially during the virtual oh, period yeah. i was just like oh my god and in the evenings uh, you know there were always these different activities that you could partake in you know at museums you know and everything. And, uh, you know, I I was always like, Oh, this sounds great. I want to do this from seven to nine. And then when you get down to it, I'm like, Oh, my goodness, I don't think I could do this. I can't be online all day and then do this at night. No way.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it gets to be too much. Mm Yeah, I feel a little bit the same way. I was partially excited that I would be able to like attend an opening because it was online. And usually I, you know, my daughter's in bed and I can't just like leave the house with her (laughs) in bed to go to an opening. So it was almost like it opened a new door. But then, yeah, often I felt the same as you. Like, I just want to be to spend that time making something with my hands and not being online. Yes. Oh, my
1: goodness. And another thing I wanted to mention as far as he had asked me if there was any advice for like new teachers to take advantage of the education programs at these museums. Sometimes they're free. Yeah, and I, I attended maybe one virtual one during this whole virtual teaching thing. But they're so rich, and there's so many resources that they give you, including like mm-hmm. before virtual materials for your classroom, posters of artists, and everything. It was it was quite nice.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: And then uh, organizations like the National Art Education Association. In my community, in the D.C. area, they have D.C. Let me see, D.C.E.A. or something like that. But But it's the D.C. arm of NAEA and they had uh, events and, you know, get togethers with teaching artists, sharing of resources It's quite helpful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like take advantage of all the resources that are out there. Mm hmm. Uh, Oh, one more that I sometimes I forget this question, but I feel like people ask this a lot is how do you overcome creative blocks? So if you're ever stuck, how do you get past that? Or are you not stuck (laughs) because you have so many things going on?
1: Just go on to something else, to something else I'm working on. Because sometimes right. I think the stuckness is important because that's the period when you can let an idea incubate mm-hmm. and just sit, just sitting with an idea for a while, I think helps. And I think it's a part of the creative process, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The downtime.
0: Yes. Oh, I love that. That that's like the incubation time. Mm hmm. Uh, You've got to let that idea grow and and mature on its own and then it'll pop out when it's ready. Yes, yes. Is there anything that you're sort of curious about right now? I know you have, you talked about a few projects going Mm -hmm. on, but any topics that are like front of mind? Uh, Topics in my art, you mean? Yeah, in your art or... Yeah, things that you're thinking about for new work. Yeah, or, I, I yeah. want
1: to. Con- I'm still intrigued by this whole notion of materials and objects and what they mean in a in a society. So mm-hmm. you know, I've been working with cardboard for about five six years, and I'm still curious about how I can incorporate like two different aspects of my practice, like the printmaking part with the sculpture constructions that I'm doing. I want to be able to mm-hmm. print. On cardboard and make prints from cardboard. In Mm. addition to creating the the structures, so I still haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. But I've done some of it. Yeah. But I feel like I'm at the beginning of that journey. So I'm. I'd like to you know, continue with that.
0: Yeah. Looking at your re- your more recent cardboard pieces and seeing, yeah, a little bit of that happening, like the prints getting, it almost looks like attached to the cardboard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then still seeing that like tear away cut away like i i really like how we see bits of the interior of that yes. cardboard and almost like the cardboard has its like guts yes, spilling out
1: is. yeah i'm <laughs> just so fascinated it's so amazing oh, yeah. how you can just be so fascinated about something right <laughs>
0: yeah yeah uh, i think that's the nature of artists like we're always fascinated with these textures, and, mm-hmm, you know, little mm-hmm. things. Uh, okay, I have a fun kind of question. What is your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? What is the name of that? Uh, chicken
1: Penang, which is a Thai dish, spicy. Oh, <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, and sometimes I feel now I feel almost bad asking because I know a lot of us are not able to get <laughs> the food from our favorite restaurants. Yes, I
1: tell you.
0: Yeah, when I think about it, I have not been
1: to a restaurant oh. in th- over three three
0: months. Yeah, me neither. It's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And then is there anybody that you would want to thank or give like a shout out to? I think to my kids, Kadala, Cass and Hyacinth. So sweet. I love that. (laughs) Have they been, do you feel like they inspire your work a lot? They inspired a lot of my children's books and my mm-hmm. illustrations. And I used yeah. uh,
1: them to model for many of the illustrations.
0: Ah, oh, that's great. Yeah. And kind of final thing, where can our listeners connect with you online? Well, they can email me, adjua at adjuaburrows.com.
1: I have a page on Instagram. If you search for me by name, my I have a some artwork up on fineartamerica.com and if you put my name mm-hmm. in, my work will come up. Yeah.
0: yeah, and then I can link to everything as well. Okay, yeah. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so informative. I feel like I've been taking <laughs> notes and <laughs> I feel like you just have so much wisdom to share. Oh, thank you. Thank you so
1: much for the opportunity, really, to talk about my work
0: and my teaching. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I feel like we yeah, could keep going.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> There's so much there. And there's, you know, so many layers of your career. And just I keep looking at your artwork, like I'm looking at that Fine Art Mm -hmm. America page. And I I love the cardboard pieces, but print the prints also have these layers and this texture that's just incredible. And, and I just oh, I just so feel like you know my I'm
1: like standing in the footprints of all of these great artists that came before me, whose expressions were just so powerful and mm-hmm. compelling. It's such a draw.
0: Yeah. Oh, right. Well, thank you. Well, oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Wow. Adjua's words at the end about standing in the footprints of great artists are so powerful. Her story and her grit provide such motivation to hear how she kept pushing to become a children's book illustrator and then author by continuing despite hearing no again and again. Keep pushing at it until the door opens, she said. Yes, force those doors to open for you. I also loved her response to Creative Block, just sitting in that stuckness and letting it be time for incubation of an idea. She talked about how that pause, that slowing down, is part of the creative process. Soak up her wisdom. And do not forget, our exhibit, See Where It Takes You, is on view now at tapexhibit.com. Go check it out. Help us spread the word by sharing it with your networks. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you.